to another episode of the In Real Deep Podcast. I'm your host, Steve Semino, senior writer at InRealDeep.com. And with me, as always, executive editor, Andrew Johnson. Hello, Andrew. Hello, nice guy, Steve. Hi, nice. Uh, I should have came up with a name for you. Hello, <laughs> mister. What's your favorite color? I actually don't know your favorite color. Red. Mr. Red. There's no Mr. Red, so you can be that yeah. if you'd like. Do you want to take that one? Yeah. Well, as long as no, I think you give the name. To oh, that's someone. true. So you that are is Mr. all seen about. <laughs> yeah, no, you can't be. <laughs> I was trying I to be nicer than Lawrence Tierney. Lawrence Tierney's a big gruff guy. We're we're collaborators. I don't want to enforce things upon you. I don't want to be Mr. Fucking Red. <laughs> <laughs> you could go a lot of ways with that, but let's not go. In, yeah. <laughs> let's not go into Steve Buscemi Tarantino direction and start rambling. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome everyone back to the podcast. We are here and we are embarking down an exciting little path. We mentioned on our previous episode, we were going to step away from the new stuff that's in theaters and trying to get Andrew to the movies, even though he has several small children. We've we've decided to pull back from that a little bit and focus on what we want to talk about. Maybe some older movies that tie into upcoming releases or new events or the zeitgeist, for lack of a better term, of where the current cinema landscape is going. And to start that, we are going down the Quentin Tarantino path. We plan to discuss every Quentin Tarantino movie as a build-up to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which comes out in late July. So, of course, if we're going to talk Tarantino, we must first begin with Reservoir Dogs, 1992's must have been very shocking heist film for the time. <laughs> Quentin Tarantino's first feature film. Uh, one, I think, Andrew, you and I had not seen in quite a while, though differing yeah. lengths of time. And yeah. one that I think is great in retrospect, still good in, in current watching, but certainly feels dated and very much like a director's first film. Yeah, well, uh, well I think one of the things is, like, I've been a, I guess – uh, for most of Quentin Tarantino's career, I mean, this is starts his career in 92 and for most of Quentin Tarantino's career, basically like from Jackie Brown on, I think I pretty much saw every one of his movies in like real time. So I got, I guess I'm not real time, but, and, um, as they were released. And so, uh, you see Jackie Brown in theaters. I didn't see it in theaters, but I, okay. re I remember renting it. As I was going to say, so that would have like, been impressive. Like, I don't think I know no, anyone who saw Jackie Brown. <laughs> but, like, I saw it soon after it came out. So I guess what I'm getting at is, like, we, we have both seen Quentin Tarantino's career develop, which having then gone, now going back and see res seeing Reservoir Dogs, I hadn't seen it in a while, and I was like, wow, that was a long time ago, and we certainly know a lot more <laughs> about Quentin Tarantino than we did the first time I saw Reservoir Dogs, so... It um, definitely feels like, I mean, though he has evolved in all some good ways, obviously production values in particular, just style, like he's refined what it means to, you know, be Quentin Tarantino and make those sort of movies to a crazy degree. But a lot of what he still does is very much there in Reservoir Dogs. Like he has not uh, matured in the sense that he has, <laughs> he has not changed his, you know, though he's switched genres here and there, it, he, he was sort of, you know, it was a half-baked Tarantino or, or like a not fully developed Tarantino, but it very much is there. Like there's not a lot of surprises, you know? Uh, with this one, yeah, yes. I mean, it, it, it sets it sets the tone for the rest of his career, <laughs> yeah. and you know, I mean, um, as someone who is on this po very podcast, I believe probably bagged on Wes Anderson for being a little bit like one note and kind of doing the same story um, every time. Uh, I mean, I guess I like Quentin Tarantino more than Wes Anderson, generally speaking, but 
Uh, I think you can certainly accuse him of the same thing. Sure, sometimes it's a cowboy hat, and sometimes it's a you know a, a samurai helmet. sword, or yeah, an army helmet. Uh, but you know, it's kind of the same thing every time. Uh, I haven't gotten bored of it yet. Um, although I, I do think it, it is sort of interesting. You know, I told you before we came on, like I had actually really seen this movie since college. I don't think and. I, obviously, I've grown up just a, just a touch since then, and um, so what I'm starting to wonder, and what I think we'll we'll we'll, we'll kind of discover as we work its way through all of his works is like, uh, have I? Is there a part of me that's a little? I don't want to say matured beyond Tarantino, but kind of puts him in a different space in my head as I've get, gotten a little bit older. Older. I mean, I, I was just. I mean, this movie is probably an extreme example of that, but. There are like literally no women in this movie. Yeah, I mean, other than wow. Like, other than like the woman that's carjacked. Yeah, and, and shoots was... Tim. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, like wow, they're like you're right. no, and like his movies are like obviously hyper violent and filled with testosterone. And um, you know, it's going to be hard for me to get all these on the schedule because my wife is not interested in Quentin Tarantino <laughs> at all, um, which I can understand. Um, uh, but it's like these are. He, the, these are guys guy movies which I'm not saying women don't like or enjoy them but I think they're just definitely targeted toward a, a more male audience and, even um, the ones that include women like I'm thinking of Uma Thurman and Kill Bill obviously or um, Jennifer Jason Lee and Lethal <clears throat> 8 they're both playing very masculine style women so it's not like he, he softens a little as he gets older but yeah the, the, the archetype the general sense of what he's going for is, is everyone fits into sort of a masculine mold be they male or female you know yeah 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 well before we get too far andrew let's do our beverage of choice segments i am drinking a drink that i feel like would make the reservoir dogs call me a pussy and that's a golden (laughs) state cider so i cracked open a nice cider if they didn't like it they can go fuck themselves because it's a delicious drink and i enjoy it and if they if they want to sit around a, a diner table and call me a pussy that's their prerogative uh, I think they might call you worse based on that. Uh, <laughs> and then Quentin Tarantino's character would have some convoluted story about how it's, uh, you know, relates to like a virgin, I'm sure, or something. But some anyway. Other pop culture yeah. bullshit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, oh, yes. What am I drinking? I'm drinking a Sierra Nevada Hazy Little Thing IPA, which I think right now is probably my favorite, like, uh, modestly priced craft beer. Uh, it's just just delicious New England IPA. It's it's not too terrible, not too terribly expensive, and it uh, it, it hits the spot. Nice go. and thirst quenching. I see that all over yeah. the place for some reason. I'm not sure why. I've just been noticing that everywhere. So the rest of the world seems to be on the same page as you because they all seem to enjoy it. It's a good beer. I mean, Sierra Nevada. You can't go wrong there. And you're in Fine. California too. So yeah, it's one of Stone Cold Steve Austin's favorite uh, favorite beer companies. So if that doesn't sell you. What does? One of them? Do you have a list of the well, rest of them? He has he has a deal. With, I know a lot of Stone Cold. If you listen to Stone Cold Steve Austin's podcast, he discusses beer often. He there's there's a brewery. I, I do in El not. there's this there's an el segundo brewery out here that makes a stone cold steve austin beer so i think Uh, they might be his favorite just because they are in business with him but he drinks a lot of sierra nevada on his podcast so he talks about he talks it up a ton so uh, well i'm glad to play the uh stone cold sure you're in good hands (laughs) all right andrew let's talk about reservoir dogs it 
to me, one of the things that I couldn't step away from or stop thinking about when I was watching it, yes, we, we said already, it feels like his first movie. It is his first movie, but it also is just, there's there, it's it's very rudimentary in a lot of ways. Like, it feels yeah. like something, you said you saw it in college. I probably saw it around that time as well. It's It feels like his first movie, and it also feels like something that is very back in that era like we saw it at the same yeah. time like i think it appealed to that like you said sort of in an age when you were a little more prone to hyper masculinity in your own mm-hmm. right when you were when you were like a a kind of person maybe who who thought boondock saints wasn't the worst movie you've ever seen <laughs> like i feel like it definitely hits that sort of target audience harder than any other uh a hundred percent and i would it's kind of a blend of that with uh i mean i i texted this to you it I, it may already be this, but it felt like I, I was struck watching it. And it just felt like a stage play. Like it felt like um, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross in some ways. Like that, like there was not, I was watching a movie. Sure. But there was nothing other than perhaps a very gruesome moment that really couldn't happen at like a community theater in a lot of ways, <laughs> which I'm not saying it's, it's like the quality. It's better than a community theater production. But like, I just mean like there's only a few there's like only a few sets and mm-hmm. like really like there's not it's it's all and it's all dialogue which i guess is a great way for quentin tarantino to introduce himself to the world because like um he is truly a master of master of dialogue uh and one of the things i was struck with but in this movie that i thought was that was really great is like you know there's there's of course the the restaurant scene where they're like shooting the shit and you know you kind of get to know who these guys are and it kind of let has you let your guard down because you're about to you know enter a a moment of like basically another after that moment like another hour and 20 minutes of um high tension um but uh like it it, what i love loved about this was how he uses dialogue in sort of a i wouldn't call it a natural way because quentin tarantino writes dialogue in a it's 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 almost like surrealist in some ways but he it's not like you know, we talk about this a lot. Like, there's some movies you get lines of dialogue which are just so clearly serving to back fill, backfill the story. Um, whereas here, it just like it, there's there were pieces that kind of are revealed about this heist and everything, and like that are they kind of come across naturally. I mean, they come across naturally in the context of the dialogue. The dialogue itself is. <laughs> Tarantino. Does that make sense? I it don't does. Know. I think you're. I think you really. I haven't even thought about it in that way, but I think you're super right. Like you're. You're obviously there are very few sets, and it is very sparse in that way. But you can see his skill as a storyteller very clearly in the way he does not have his characters explicitly say what happens. He has them talk. They're not talking to the audience. They're talking to each other, and I think that is great because it feels more quote unquote real because they're having conversations, and you as a viewer sort of fill in the blanks, and then the way he obviously weaves back you know passages of time and cuts back to stuff and cuts forward to stuff like you it's just it's not that that kind of thing is is always really impressive when pulled off really well and for someone's first movie you know directed and he's written other things before this but the first like his first like auteur type you know experience that's really crazy like there's a lot of skill that goes into that and it's not it's not easy like there are a million easy if this movie was just a straight you know start to finish real time movie you'd be like what 
like it's fine like it's whatever but mm. i think what jumped out at people besides the violence and the dialogue is just is the skill in which he does not pander to the audience he does not talk down to them he does not lay things out in a neat fashion he asks you to keep up and i think that's something you and i both love in yeah. a in a good writer director is not give, is, is making us pay attention and absorb what's going on on our own and follow the story like it's just, it's not it's not a way you see most people go because you run the risk of fucking it up and making a bad movie and people play it safe yeah you said it perfectly there which is like his characters don't talk like normal people but they talk like they're talking to each other that's a great way of sort of um uh uh, uh thinking about it i think that the, you you hit, hit kind of what i was what i was trying to say like yeah there was a there was a moment in there where i like i mean like i said i hadn't seen this movie in like probably 15 years um and i just forgot i mean i remembered like the actors but i and i knew they were like criminals but i'd kind of forgotten everything else and i got like 20 or 30 minutes in and i like realized i forgot what the high like what they even stole um and then there's just like one throwaway line of dialogue where i think uh harvey Keitel's character mr white asks um steve buscemi's character or mr pink did you bring did you get the stones which it they don't even say like Hey, did you get those diamonds that were worth thirty-seven million dollars or whatever? They just said, "Do you get the stones?" And so you're like, "Oh, right, they stole diamonds." And like, and like you said, you kind of are just keeping up with everything. Yeah, why would why would robbers discuss the item they stole? It's like, why why do characters in movies call each other by their names all the time? You don't. You usually when you hang out with anybody, you don't say, "Hello, Andrew. It is me, Steve." You just say, "Hey, man, what's up?" And so, and you nailed that. And in 1992, I don't think a lot of people were doing that kind of dialogue and that kind of storytelling. So I imagine it blew people's minds back then. Yeah, and I mean, it, like, of course, it like the looming thing here is like we we know like we know now Pulp Fiction is going to happen, and in a lot of ways, Pulp Fiction is just a, a like a much better version of, <laughs> of this, where where it it does a lot of the same things. It plays with you know timelines and flashbacks even more, you know, and stuff like that. And um, so you know, like that, I think that's the other thing. It's like especially with his first two movies that they happen so close to each other, it gets hard to be, and they're so similar sort of in dealing with LA and, you know, criminals and like, and even like there's people with similar names that maybe are related to each (laughs) other in some sort of shared universe and maybe not, um, that it's, it's hard to like, talk about this too much without thinking it's kind of like whenever we talk about al pacino we end up talking about robert de niro um like like it's kind of the same thing um so but so but i do i'm trying as best i can to like just sit and judge reservoir dogs on it so even though i know like we're very looming is pulp fiction and pulp fiction is you know arguably his mas- masterpiece i guess i, I still um so oh, that'll be a fun thing to talk about i'm not i'm not sure if i agree but i want to see them all in a row before i make any sort of bold proclamations in that regard yeah. but obviously but you're talking about pulp fiction is such a better movie we'll talk about it pretty soon there are actual female characters in it with dialogue and plots <laughs> and relevance but even beyond that like it just it's more of like uh I'm, I'm gonna just i'm gonna say just it's more of a movie it's more of a complete story this is l- like a hyper masculine you know heist gangster movie in n- not in a way like <laughs> like not a not in some movie it's not like the violence is i think we remember the violence more than it really is like there's it's mostly talking with with brief moments of shooting and cutting and and murder but obviously the parts that are 
the, the violence that does happen is very stark and very memorable. And it's no surprise that that's what people harped on after the fact, because that's obviously what it was going for, is really making that stuff count. And even to this day, it is relatively jarring. Even if you know it's coming, you're still like, wow, this is, uh, this is a lot. This is, this is not pulling any punches at all. Well, more than any of his movies, this one comes down to one one scene and what and, and what people take away. Um, that's not to say it's even the best scene or the most informative scene, but like, you know, yeah, I I think you know Michael Madsen dancing around a Steeler's wheel and cutting a guy's ear off. Uh, it that was a that was a game changing moment, not just for Tarantino, but for like, yeah, the the movie industry, like. It was shocking. I was reading online after I watched this that like a, a lot of people, including Wes Craven, who is literally the master of horror, walked out of the theater at Cannes when the, when he when he screened this for the first time because they wow. were so old. Um, and Wes Craven later said, you know, he was like, it was it wasn't it was like more of a sign of respect, but like, you know, they keep showing this guy. They don't actually show the ear being cut off, but they keep showing his side of his face with the ear gone and it's it's appalling and um it's just like it it it's a it's a shocking moment and and is probably designed to shock and like it's the thing you kind of have to talk about with this movie i didn't the one thing i wrote down is like um the thing that bothered me the most watching this scene and knowing it was coming was actually that um michael michael madsen's character who delivers this like horrible torture and delivers this incredible appalling soliloquy about how he's going to torture this guy and he's there's nothing he can say and blah 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 keeps wiping his hands off on the guy's clothes i don't that's something about that bothered me like he's he's just mutilating someone and then he's like disgusted by what by what's coming out of this guy that he's doing it was just like there was something about that it's just like but the, I think that's I guess what I'm driving at there is that that's like there's little things that a director can have can can ha- put on screen that really actually subtly you might not even realize it drive home the like shocking nature of a scene. And for some reason, obviously, someone's ear getting cut off is shocking enough. But the idea that he was like disgusted by the blood and wiping his, himself off on the, the guy he was torturing just just made it that much worse for me i don't know um, no that's i didn't notice that at all that's fascinating and it is a great little nugget i think when you're you know a writer and director you can even have more control over that like he obviously knew exactly what he was going for with that scene what that scene really does too what this whole movie does is set up another i don't want to say tarantino trope i'll even say just a, one of his greatest skills i think is picking is putting music in movies like yes you know yes, i don't yeah. think he does it so much anymore i think that was probably more like now he uh, i can't think of many like obviously there's still some good examples but the the early movies in particular this and, yeah. and pulp fiction i would then and, and probably some others after that i think yeah but but really the first two stand out incredibly for how well chosen the music is the popular music music from the past songs that you cannot hear now without thinking of the yeah. of tarantino movies which i think is the greatest like when, when you hear Joe Tex or when you hear Steeler's Wheel or when you hear the opening song, Little Green Bag, there there are the Reservoir Dogs songs. Like there's no yeah. other way to think about them but in this movie. Yeah. yeah, great point. I would actually argue that the music goes all the way up to um, Django. Uh, I don't know about Inglorious Bastards, but like Django had like a Rick Ross song, which I know you're not like really a big hip hop <laughs> person, but like I that's a to me is another, and I'm not really either, but like, uh, 
having a hip hop song in a, in a movie that it, it well, it's uh you know, what's the word? It's anachronistic. Um, having a hip hop, hip hop song in a movie set in like, um, <laughs> uh, uh, what's pre prebellum antebellum, antebellum, uh, South, um, is kind of an it's an it's an example of his sort of like brilliant inspired and kind of like you know out there musical choices. I think that stopped with the Hateful Eight only because he wanted to have Ennio Morricone do the score, sure. and Ennio Morricone did the score for Good, Bad, and the Ugly and all those spaghetti westerns. And so um, I'm, I'm kind of wondering, if, especially with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I'm guessing this is the case. We'll get some more of that really, really distinctive, unusual <laughs> music. I'm, I'm guessing that will be the case. So. Yeah, and he, yeah, you're right. It, 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 <clears throat> it definitely is a thing he's done his entire career. I, I think the originals might have a little more. Like, I don't associate so many other, but like, there's the David Bowie song. I think Cat People in Inglorious Bastards too. When so, yeah, like, which is yeah. used really well. I, I just think he was. He's right. a little more sparing in in his yeah. in his more you know recent films than in the beginning, where there's like four or five songs in each of the first couple movies, where you're like, yep, those are the songs from the movie. Well, yeah, I was gonna offer Kill Bill. I think Kill Bill actually is a great is a great example of that. But I agree that like more recent recent films, it's it's kind but, of tapered but, off. But want, great at it nonetheless. Yeah. Like one of the best. Another yeah. thing that yes. him and Wes Anderson weirdly share is is that yes, they're both very true. very good at that, which is crazy. <laughs> that's, true. that's true. Yes, that's a very good point. Very Maybe good. it's because like this is me totally spitballing. I didn't mean to get on this subject, but they both know themselves really well. Like maybe the fact that they don't vacillate from their their particular sort of style and tone so much they are just very skilled at being okay this is what i want to do with this and i want this song to accompany it and like they they're not they're they just both seem very very set in their ways to a certain extent very certain and i maybe that that that, there's, that comes as like sort of a full package you know like they know what they want it to look like they know the way that they want their characters to talk and they know the song they want to accompany that and like i don't know if that's there's obviously way more examples than just those two but they both seem you know to be very set in their ways and in, in a lot of ways a good way because it it produces very full well-rounded versions of whatever they're trying to create i think you're right on there i think it's because they're both very specific and very confident in their tastes mm-hmm. um and like <laughs> that's for some reason this is sticking out for me but like quentin tarantino puts out of this like 10 favorite films of the year every year pretty much and i think four or five years ago like he put um, the Lone Ranger on there, um, which <laughs> I, I saw, and I'm not saying is a good movie, um, but I can actually understand having seen it why Quentin Tarantino liked it, and I think it's just illustrative of like um, how, again, how confident he is in his own tastes. He has a very specific taste. He's looking for certain things, um, and that just comes through in 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 his movies. And we talk about this all the all the time. When you, I I believe that. Um, when you make movies that are very specific, they they become not exactly universal, but they are able to tap into a large tribe of people's interests or appeal to them because because they're made so specifically and with such care. They're not like like no Quentin Tarantino movie will ever be guilty of the phrase focus group to death, right? <laughs> yes. Like 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 um and so, you know, that's and same with Wes Anderson, and that's why they're like two of the guys that we we talk about as like the best the best around you and, know, so. and with probably two of the most fervent <clears throat> fan bases too because Absolutely. you know they they do if you see one of those movies you're not always getting the exact same movie but you know it's going to suit your interests and there is something to be said for loving 
Lone Ranger unabashedly and being like, I like Lone Ranger. Fuck you if you don't like it. <laughs> like, it was good to me. Like, I respect that to a certain extent. You and I both have our own weird choices, and we're obviously not Quentin Tarantino, but I think we are both very – we both appreciate someone who's like – I like, I love Down Periscope, and I'm like, I <laughs> dare you to tell me Down Periscope isn't good. Like, I will fight you if yeah. you tell me Down Periscope. Like, yeah. But it's good to just c- commit to things that tickle you in some direction. I think it does when – you, when you're a filmmaker, maybe, like, maybe you're not making the most universal movies that have the most broad appeal but the people who like you are going to love you to the ends of the earth and that's that's worth something for sure and and obviously there it's not just 10 people who like them it's 10 million people who like them yeah, so yeah, it works out pretty yeah. well for both of them yeah 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 well it's like i mean lone ranger is in some ways more defensible than like the dc fanboys who are like just caping up for uh like a, a like it's lone ranger no one defended that movie <laughs> yeah. i don't even think johnny depp defended that movie but <laughs> quentin tarantino saw something in there and like that's the thing. You Tarantino's movies, especially, are so filled with semi-obscure music and very obscure film references that, yep. like, he wouldn't be who he was without like liking the Lone Ranger, I guess. So, <laughs> um, I don't know. I feel like we've gone way off, way astray. No, here. it's a good, it's a good, it's a good detour, though. I think we're learning. We're 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 rambling as we go, which is always a good sign. Well, do we need to come back and talk a little bit about Chris Penn? We do. Right? Oh, we need to talk about this cast in general, I think. Obviously, this was a decent cast in 1992. It's only gotten better with time. Like, they've all, you know, Buscemi and, Steve, and uh, Tim Roth and – uh, unfortunately, not so much Madsen and, and uh, Michael Madsen and Chris Penn, but most of the cast went on to either great stardom or, you know, just was a, you know, have been were acting for years since then. And for a, a someone's first film in '92, a really, you know, an indie film that did not have a lot of appeal, like it, it's it's pretty remarkable all the people who got to be in it. And Chris Penn, chief among them, I would I'd say is is the best performer in this entire movie, the best actor in it, the best character, like fantastic. I agree. I kind of just want to, I don't go to Halloween parties anymore, but if I was going to one this year, I kind of would just want to show up in a Nike tracksuit, slightly (laughs) overweight, which I'm already there for that, that part of it. Uh, And then with one of those giant car phones, Um, Chris Penn is just, he's outstanding in this movie. I, and, and rest in peace, man. Like, um, Arguably the best pen. I don't know. Um, Just quantity over quality is probably just stomped out. But Sean Penn just seems like a douchebag. But I'd uh, I'd rather hang out with Chris Penn than I would with Sean. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. I mean, he's he's great. I I think like I I wrote like I also think Tim Roth's performance in this is 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 really outstanding. Um, I had actually forgotten he was like basically in the movie i don't know i don't know why i forgot that but uh um uh, yeah it's just yeah it's it's a sort of a murderer's row in terms of like uh great performances and um i mean even michael madsen we talked about he, michael madsen is great for the the role he's playing which is like uh a psychotic elvis basically is kind of how <laughs> i describe it um you know the thing with michael madsen is that he just doesn't ever play any other character other than this and so um you know he's employed well here yeah he's great i mean they're all they're all very good actors like we said really no actresses in the movie at all i will say i think that harvey keitel though i know from reading about this movie he is one of the prime reasons it got made he got the script he loved it he like willed it into life but yep. he's not very good in this movie. It's just he. No. Wait, given that if you watch Pulp Fiction, which again we're going to talk about in the near future, yeah. he's amazing as Winston Wolf. Like he is, he's in the movie for 
five, ten minutes, and he's one of the most memorable parts. Here, just carrying the weight of the Tarantino dialogue, being essentially the main character, trying to sound cool, it, it just does not work for him. Like, the stuff Tim Roth says, the stuff Chris Penn says, the sort of wordy Tarantino hip shit does not work coming out of the mouth of a 45-year-old dude from New York. Like, it just does not happen. They're just not on the same page. And it's not Keitel's fault. He does the best he can. And he has some really good lines, but I just think it's just a little out of his wheelhouse. But, yeah, and I think Lawrence Tierney, too. As much as I love Lawrence Tierney, some of the lines he has to say is just like, this old man has no idea what the fuck he's saying. <laughs> like, this old, this old man Toby. is just powering through Toby. this dialogue. Who the fuck is Toby? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, no, I think it's a good point. And it's like, you can't really get mad about it. It's not... Yeah, it's not Harvey Keitel's best moment. You can't really get mad about it knowing that he's basically the reason the movie got made. And, and it's uh, not bad. It's just not, you know, it's just a little a little outside of his, his uh, where he really hits homers. Yeah, it's, well, he's in, he just doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't. It's, he doesn't sell as an L.A. gangster, you know. Yeah. I, I, you know, <laughs> there we go. He just doesn't. That doesn't. I'm not buying it, you know. I, I don't know. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I need to see like. It's almost like Joe Pesci in Casino. I need to see the backstory where he somehow ends up there, um, and and then maybe I'd buy it a little bit more. I don't know, but yeah, I think you're right on. And and it is again. It's like that Pulp Fiction thing looming, and Harvey Keitel is like just perfect as as the wolf so i don't know um yeah yeah he does the best he can also we should we should talk a little bit and i don't want to harp on this too much because it's it we'll talk about it as as the movies go by but tarantino incorporates a couple racial slurs into this one uh, this is sort of a thing that he does throughout his career to varying effects. He's made whole movies based on it at this point. I was going to say, to be clear, it's the racial slur that he's most known for, yeah. in case anyone is wondering which one we're Yeah, the to. prominent racial slur. You've, 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 if you know Quentin Tarantino, you know what we're talking about. The only reason I break it up is because, to me, it, it felt jarring here. It didn't feel necessary. It didn't do anything. Like Even in Pulp Fiction, when he uses it, it makes sense. There are black characters in the scene. Like it's not, there's some relevance to it. Like there's no, it's just, it's just people saying it here to say it. And, and like, I know it was 27 years ago and I know he, he he's gotten more, you know, he's, he's, he's employed it differently at this point. I think uh, to better, you know, to more acclaim to less awkward situations, but here it just, it just definitely made me raise an eyebrow every time at least. Like I, I did not particularly enjoy it at all. Yeah, it, it, I think jarring is the right word. I'm not like, I mean, I am. It's, proud. it's a movie. Their characters, like, they're not good guys. Like, I, that's all very clear. So it's not the right. end of the world. Right. But it just right. it felt like just for shock value, or, or I don't know what it was for in 1992. But it just didn't feel well, like it was necessary. No, I think you hit on it. That's kind of what I was gonna say. Is like it, that, and like when you add that together with like the ear scene, and like it just feels like he did a lot of things to like sort of in this film to announce his presence, right? Mm -hmm. Like I am here, I am going to make a fucking movie <laughs> and it's going to be like never nothing you've ever seen. And, um, you know, but I mean, look, we're going to keep revisiting this idea of Quentin Tarantino being over the top in certain ways. That's just part of his oeuvre to use that word that we can't ever say in this <laughs> podcast. Like that's part of him. And so this is kind of, one example of it. Um, I just, I do, you do get the sense looking back now that this it, specifically in this movie, um, those jarring, shocking moments, um, they feel a little bit less in service of the, 
the plot and character development and more in service of like making a, a statement about I'm here. I think that's a hundred percent right. And I mean, obviously in retrospect or it, it worked, like it was great. Like he, yeah. he got noticed and he went on to make deeper, better, more interesting movies in a lot of ways. So you can't fault him at all in that regard. Like if that's what he was going for, he nailed it. And it's, and I think you're a hundred percent right. That is what he was going for. But yeah, there are, there are ways to have that sort of thing be, be worked into character plot something along those lines and that just was not the intention here so i think now that we know who this dude is you go back and watch him kicking the door and you're like oh did you need to kick the door in that hard but yeah. that's 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 hindsight's 2020 like you know can't don't tell if i was a hungry young director and i wanted to kick the door and i'd probably do some crazy shit too like what, what at that point what was the downside you know he was trying to get noticed and he did so yeah, it's kind of the same thing as Harvey Keitel maybe not being the best choice for uh Yeah, you're going to tell him but, not to but, be in your movie. Making, <laughs> yeah, making the making the making the statement. Yeah, I don't know. Um yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Sorry Harvey, I was like sorry, no. I was thinking Kiefer Sutherland for this one. I was thinking Charlie Sheen. I was thinking like <laughs> You said Kiefer Sutherland and then some some for some reason my head went to Keanu Reeves. <laughs> I, was, I think he was still Bill and Ted at that point. I'm not he sure if he was up to Reservoir. He was Dog just Bowl. Ted at that point. <laughs> yeah, he was just Ted. Anyway. <laughs> but yeah, yeah he was you know it, it's it's I th- and i think that's obviously why we're watching the movie and i think that's one of the if you, if you were to watch reservoir dogs as a film fan at this point that's something as we sort of noted from the top you can't look at it without thinking about what came after it whether it's pulp fiction or whether it's the dude's whole career like it it really does set a tone it it's it sets a style that he is adhered to to a certain extent for yo oh these many years and like it is very much a tarantino movie it's and what he refined over the years for the most part has just gotten better and better so it's it's one of those cool ones where you look back and you're like well this is a little janky and this is a little over the top and this is way too much but the core of what's here is impressive and you just build and build upon it from there so yeah it almost feels like you know how like uh stand-up comedians will go to a club and like work on material before they go and film their special. <laughs> like that's kind of what reservoir feels reservoir dogs feels like in, in retrospect, it's like he's working on his material. And then the next, the next one is the, the first hit special, I guess. And that's another really interesting comparison. Cause like usually when there's a stand up comedian, like they, they usually don't like their, their bit changes, but their general demeanor and take on the world doesn't change. They just find new ways to say it. They find new mm-hmm. angles to take. Like mm-hmm. there is something to that. Like as opposed to one of those chameleon directors who can do a million different things and like right. maybe has a visual style to them, but really tackles subjects all over the place. Tarantino yeah. very much. No, like, like you said, he was, he was not working on expanding his horizons so much. <laughs> as he was working on figuring out what he wanted to do and doing yeah. it better. And that's really, yeah. that's, that's fascinating. It's gonna be a great one to track for the 27 years that come, you know, that follow up. <laughs> yeah. Uh, luckily it only makes a movie like every four or five years so <laughs> yeah. it does sound Rest daunting to say 27 but in reality it's like 10 movies so that's not bad. yeah not even i don't think <laughs> yeah, so <that's> true. Yeah. <laughs> well that does it for our reservoir dogs episode as we said if you haven't seen it in a while definitely go back and give it a look especially in the build-up follow along with all the tarantino movies with us there's nuggets there that are good. And if you if you were a hyper-masculine boy like we were when we first saw this and thought this was the coolest thing in the world, you'll see nuggets of that that will make you smile, and you'll see parts that will make you embarrassed to have been 18, 19, 20, 21 mm-hmm. years old. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so. mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh.
Right on. Well, as always, you can find our archives on InRealDeep.com. It's newly redesigned. It looks great. We've streamlined it. We've moved a few things around. we got a great new logo, which everybody loves, which <laughs> I told Andrew is one of his greatest lifetime accomplishments, and yeah. I stand by that. It's beautiful. Yeah. So yeah. go there, check it out. The reviews might be a little sparse these days, but we're going to start churning the podcast out as best we can, do a lot of these retrospectives, hop into older things, build up to new releases, like all that kind of stuff. So it's all going to be on inrealdeep.com. And as always, the In Real Deep podcast is available everywhere podcasts are, Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, all those places. Go subscribe and can keep listening because we'll be putting out some good stuff. Andrew, thanks Pulp. for joining us. Great uh, great to talk some Quentin with you. I'm looking forward to this. Yeah, Pulp Fiction is next. Or maybe Toy Story. I don't know what's going to come next. Yeah, we're gonna, yes. <laughs> your feed may get... We're going to do two <laughs> retrospectives in a row here. So if you get confused, just, just listen to Toy Story too, though. That's going to be a good one. Uh, so. I, I think we might have a special three-year-old guest. Hopefully it's for the Toy Story <laughs> podcast. Uh, yeah, don't, she's not ready for Pulp yeah, yet. No, 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 no. Yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> So keep an eye out for that, either Pulp Fiction or Toy Story, two classics nonetheless. So either way, you'll yep. be happy. So. I think I think Pulp Fiction came out in 94 and Toy Story was 95. So there, there you go. go. <laughs> yeah. That's great. Chronologically. We're, we're <laughs> oh, it's going to be good stuff. Well, thank you all so much for listening and we'll be seeing you further on up the road. Adios. Adios.